We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What a Americans get together to diagnose and treat the problems facing European football. But please listen anyway. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, all right. I hope you will listen to this. I'm very excited to present to you Grant Wall. You can follow him on Twitter at Grant Wall. Uh, sat down to speak with me about the Super League, why it was a thing, why it is no longer a thing, the protests it has engendered, the scenes at Old Trafford, and even a little bit about the future of women's football. Um, it's a... Uh, 30-minute or so conversation, a 40-minute conversation that I think was really enjoyable for me and hopefully will be enjoyable for you as well. Grant does so many things. He was once actually uh, in the running to be FIFA president, but also uh, a longtime writer for Sports Illustrated, uh, just did um, a big article about the original Ronaldo, uh, a phenomenon. Um, He does a podcast of his own that you should listen to, Football with Grant Wall, and uh, recently had a series on the Blue Wire podcast network called American Prodigy. that was nominated for a Webby, uh, a limited series special and documentary about Freddie Adu. So you can check that out. Basically, he's doing all the good stuff all the time. And with that, I am thrilled to introduce Grant Wall. Grant, it's great to talk to you. Great to be with you. Yeah, so I think we can jump right into it just to be um, careful with your time. And one of the things that is interesting in speaking to someone who has written about football and and built your life reporting on football from this side of the, the Atlantic is that it's all bound up in a dynamic between U.S. sport culture and European football culture that feel very incompatible in a lot of ways. And as American ownership has become a powerful force in European football, you can sort of understand the tension that is building 
between the ownership model that exists there and the one that exists here. And I'm sort of curious whether you feel this Super League, this ill-fated and and seemingly preposterously planned Super League announcement was always inevitable and and how you react to maybe a misunderstanding that is more cultural than business-oriented. Great question. I mean, I do think it was inevitable in part because we've seen this this process play out in, in certain ways, you know, since the nineties, I, you know, Simon Cooper, the wonderful writer went back and found an example of a 1966, 1968 story talking about the potential of a European super league. So this is not a new idea, but ever since the late nineties, the biggest European clubs have been using the possibility of a breakaway super league to threaten that, and get concessions from UEFA that help those big clubs with Champions League. And so those concessions have included a lot of things over the years. The most recent one a couple of years ago was that the top four finishers in the four biggest European leagues would all get direct passes to the group stage of Champions League the following season. That didn't happen before. You can remember Arsenal playing in the UEFA Champions League qualifying rounds quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I long for those days, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I still think there's some things that could be negotiated. We'll see if that happens. I mean, like, obviously, the, the Champions League format that was ratified recently includes, a, you know, more games. Uh, two spots that go every year to teams that haven't earned it based on coefficient. We'll see if that gets pulled back uh, after the Super League fiasco. Um, so this is not a new thing. I like The question was when and, and were the clubs going to go all the way and what would the response be? Mm. And we've seen the response now. And clearly in... in I mean, in Germany, there was so much negativity, anticipated negativity, it never got off the ground for Bayern or Dortmund. In England, there was so much negativity after the fact that everything crumbled. We haven't seen that that level of negativity from fans in Spain and Italy. Some, but not nearly as much as in England. But if you're going to have a Super League, you need the English teams to be involved. So... um, you know, like in terms of Americanness, I can totally understand what the resentment toward the United States from fans in Europe. And I know not all the owners of the Super League teams were American, but it's four prominent clubs with American owners um, Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, AC Milan. And the th- those three English clubs were said to have been pushing. For this thing to happen, so um, well, you've also and got the model that feels very American, right? I mean, it, while there were non-Americans involved. The the, the model feels like a, tr- a traditionally American sports franchise model. I mean, th- these are American sports business concepts, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you also had an American bank, J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. So like you know, bank you know, bankrolling it. So they, I understand the resentment toward Americans about this. Yeah. Well, so then. The question, a couple of things around that. We can get to the protests and what's gone on after that. But one of the things that really surprised me is how poorly organized this seemed to be, given the players involved and the amount of money involved. And obviously, one perspective might be that it was all a show, 
of power and a threat to UEFA and a first salvo to sort of soften people up for the idea that this is something that might be available down the road. I don't know that I buy that just because there's millions of dollars that will be spent to extricate themselves from the contract that they have with J.P. Morgan Chase. So are you surprised at how ham-fisted the attempt was? And do you believe, as I think many people do, that it was in fact fan power that scuppered this? Or do you think that there might have been other forces that were more impactful in their decision to back down? Well, I mean... I do think the the governmental threats were were real, at least in the UK. Um, And I do think that the threat from UEFA, which was very explicitly stated, not so explicitly stated by FIFA, by the way, which I found interesting, of players who play in the Super League will not be allowed to play in the World Cup or the Euro or essentially international (laughs) tournaments for their national teams. And players took that threat seriously. In a lot of places. Um, what was the first part of your question? Well, just, I mean, I guess it's really two parts, which is uh, on brand for me in the way I ask my questions. So I apologize. <laughs> One was just related to how ham-fisted the, the oh, attempt was, yeah. the, the, the speed with which they backed down, and whether fan power is really the thing at play here, as I, I think fans would like to believe and certainly may be correct in believing. I, I, I do think in, in England, fan power played a huge role, but... For me, the biggest surprise in all of this was how incompetent the release went by the Super League teams. This is something supposedly they've been working on for years. It sure didn't look like it. It They sure didn't take the time to get stakeholders on board or even aware of anything. So you're talking about you know, media companies, players, um, you know, someone to present this to the fans as something that they might actually want. And, you know, that incompetence is the biggest single storyline for me coming out of this, you know, and Florentino Perez, the, the Real Madrid president was really the only club super club leader who went out publicly and he didn't even really try to make a good case for it. He just, arrogantly sort of assume this is of course if i want this when these these clubs want it then it's a good thing and it showed off how arrogant the whole enterprise was yeah well put i mean i i think the most fan popularity for this if you can even call it that was in italy i think juventus supporters were the least opposed to it saying popular is probably phrasing it wrong. And you could see why that might be the case with the struggles that that league has had right i mean right now the premier league is the dominant elite club domestic club league in the world and so it was going to always be the least popular there and then when you layer the cultural aspects onto it on top of it it's it's unsurprising but one thing that I'm curious from your perspective like I'm an American who loves Arsenal football club first and foremost and and as a result of that English football culture and European football culture and I love it because it is not American sports culture not yeah. in spite of it not being American sports culture. And I'm curious from your perspective if you think that there's a misunderstanding of what fans want. Because I think, look, we live in a weird media moment where you can be wrong, you can be terrible, you can be bad. But if the people inside the tent side with you, you're fine. We see that in our politics, right? There's a lot of terrible things being said, a lot of terrible things happening, but no one cares as long as their people support it. Do you think the clubs believed 
that their own fans would love this, that somehow their own fans would embrace being one of the Super League clubs. And that's where they misjudged it because I don't know which fans this was for. And and I've never really heard an argument of which fans they thought would would enjoy this. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think American-based Premier League fans or European soccer fans, my sense is there wasn't any real support for this Super League, that they like, like, like you said, they like the current setup over there. And, and so I don't know, maybe there's some sort of, like, not fans yet of soccer that the Super League folks think that they would create by this but but those fans aren't even aware of what these teams signify yet so i i that seems a little silly to me i think Um, package wise you could at least make the argument that one of the one of the challenges the barriers to entry for a new fan in european football is the arcane complexity of the competitions right there's champions league europa league fa cup league cup domestic competition in the league Right. right there's there's layers to the league itself and that that complexity can be seen as a barrier to entry, but I also think it's it's what makes the sport sticky in a way because once you put in the work to understand it, you feel like you're part of this really rich tapestry of sport as opposed to just occasionally tuning into your team when you watch them. You really have to invest in, in right. your fandom, you know? Yeah, you know, and one thing that didn't really get talked about much was sort of the knock-on effects of what this Super League setup would have caused because – if there was no relegation for the so-called founding clubs (laughs) from the super league, then the domestic league top four races wouldn't really matter moving forward. And so like one impact of that you could predict would be that the domestic league, like the premier league would probably feel the need to institute end of season playoffs to determine a champion like we see in the American pro sports leagues. And that would not set well, obviously with, with fans. You don't think there's a craving for a super bowl in the premier league grant. You don't think English fans want their own super bowl. Come on. It's it's funny because I had a a major television sports television executive in the U S tell me a few years ago, he just wished that the premier league, would do everything the same, except they would have a final at the end of the year for the teams that finished first and second in the <laughs> Premier League, and that grand final would determine the champion. And just that proposal alone would explode the heads of like billions of people. I Doesn't think. that statement, though, show you the disconnect? The idea that that's needed is such a misunderstanding of how <laughs> this works. And I mean... There are finals, there's cups, that's what they're for. And then this is a different thing. And so it really does get to the point that like, sometimes when it comes to culture, you can't explain culture. Culture is a thing you just, you live, you know, I use the analogy on our podcast that, uh, or maybe it was on Twitter, same difference, um, that I'm an American. When I go overseas and I see a McDonald's, I know exactly what to expect from a McDonald's, but that's not why I'm there. I don't want to go eat in a McDonald's when I'm in France or Italy or the UK or Germany. So I just think that there's some American attitudes that can't be left behind, but this is the problem. The one point they do have, Grant, is that it it appears to me that the economic model is currently unsustainable because the only way you can own a football club that can succeed today is if you're owned by a billionaire, if you're owned by basically a state operative that's engaged in sports washing or an oligarch. And 
In the case of the billionaires, they still have profit motive in mind. In the case of the other two, there's other questionable aspects to their ownership that we don't have to engage with right now. So I feel that there are two waves crashing against each other. There are the fans feeling that their game is being taken from them. And there's these owners that have been allowed into the game that feel that the current economic model is unsustainable. When these two waves crash into each other, we get what we saw at Old Trafford. Before we come to that, is the solution economic restructuring or is the solution an ultimate and eventual departure of this ownership model and a protection of the game for the fans in some other way that maybe incorporates government? And I realize I've just asked you like a PhD level <laughs> dissertation type question. So feel free to uh, answer it in whatever way you see fit. <laughs> My hundred page response yes. will be published next week. Thank you. Um, I, I see. I think it's going to be very hard for the government to suddenly change the way ownership of English Premier League teams works, you know, or or to go to the fifty plus one rule like we see in in Germany. I just think it's highly unlikely. I'm not a lawyer. I think it would be challenged. Um, but you're right. I mean, there there part the status quo from a financial perspective is not really working. And and I don't think it's a good thing that Bayern Munich wins the title every year in Germany. There's a little more turnover in England, right? But mm. you know, in Spain it's the same teams. This year Juventus didn't win in Italy, but they'd won the previous nine, mm. something like that. Um, and so let's not forget <laughs> France, egalitarian France where you've got P- I mean PSG may not win it this year, but you know, but they, they usually are a do, you yep. know, and, and, and so that to me is a real problem. And, and so when you actually ask people to do more than just shake their fist at the sky and provide potential solutions, that's where it gets harder. Right. And, and so I'm a supporter of financial fair play. Maybe there's a way to tighten that up even more. Mm. So you could make the argument that financial fair play has essentially locked in yeah. the same clubs at the top. Um, you know, I found interesting in the Super League proposal, this didn't get commented on too much, was that they said it was going to be a salary capped Super League. Mm. So that clearly must have been coming from the John W. Henry types, probably the Cronky types as a way to manage costs. I I don't see Man City proposing that or Real Madrid proposing that. Mm. So that was interesting to me, though they didn't lay it out in much detail about how that would have worked. I think it had to do with basically percentage of revenues allowed, you know, being allowed to spend on players, which isn't totally a cap um, like we see in the NBA or the NFL, you know, like a friend of mine, Henry Bushnell is a good writer for Yahoo. And he actually Put, laid out a proposal for something that would be like a super league, but you have to earn your spots mm. in it. And there, there wouldn't be founding clubs and permanent members of the super league. And his proposal was actually going to break off the super league teams each season from their domestic league too. And so they would, essentially play each other in a long season at the new top of the pyramid, there would be movement up and down. And, you know, his proposal suddenly made the domestic cup competitions. It gave them more importance Mm -hmm. because that's where there, you would have the direct competition inside a country, even with 
the Super League teams, if that makes sense. I, I think it's a, I know Henry's American, but like it's, it, it wasn't a, a bad proposal. I think Michael Cox at the Athletic, who's not American, made a, a similar point. You know, like, and, and obviously those would be drastic changes, but I do wonder if, if what, you know, of the, all the anger toward the Super League from fans, what percentage of it was coming from no promotion relegation? What percentage of it was coming from this is blowing up the, the accepted system we've gotten used to? Mm. Um, and any competent proposal for down the road for a Super League that actually cared about what the fans think and wasn't arrogant would actually, I'm sure, do market research on all this <laughs> stuff and, 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 and actually listen to fans because... Like there were even supposedly, I'd love to see more details in some reporting about this. There were supposedly some PR firms that apparently did look into some of this stuff ahead of time and, mm. and basically told the super club teams that the majority of your fans are, are totally fine with this. And whoever those PR firms are need to stop being PR firms. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did like a survey monkey survey of, you know, people who clicked on a link on Facebook or something. It's probably really representative. I have no doubt. Um, well, look, and, and let's be clear. I think there is, the problem is the illusion and the reality, right? Because we know that one of the things that is essential to the competitive spirit in European football is the idea of merit, right? That you, you, arrive where you are in football on merit. So if you're in the Premier League, it's because you earn the right to be there. And if you're in the Champions League, it's because you earn the right to be there. But we also know that that is somewhat illusory at this point, that there is the illusion of merit because the same, what, 92% of the teams, same teams have qualified for the group stage of the Champions League from England in the last 20 years. And, um, you know, there's been what, outside of the, the Super League clubs, there's been... I think three teams that won the Premier League since its foundation that weren't a Super League club. So you do s sort of butt up against this idea of of an egalitarian merit-based system that isn't the actual um, experience when you're living it. But I, I do think there's a problem here, Grant, which is essentially that we all kind of seem to agree that the UEFA system's broken, that the FIFA system broken, that's another issue altogether, that the ownership models aren't working, that the clubs don't make money. The only way you can compete is to spend, vastly outspend the competition, but do it at huge losses. It's not a sustainable system, but that is crashing up against a very strong cultural opposition to changing anything that might fundamentally upend the, the pyramid in England, the, this merit-based structure in Europe. And I don't see them being compatible. And that sort of leads us to where we are now with these protests, because there's a lot of complex issues here, and we're not going to get to all of them, obviously. One of them is simply, if you hound out these owners, what owners do you bring in? Um, do you change the ownership model substantially? Well, who's going to want to own a loss-making multi-billion pound asset that they own in partnership with fans? It's a nice idea. The reality of it is, I don't know who's going to want to do that. Um, you know, you can wind up with owners that are English, like Mike Ashley, and not necessarily be in any better position. Ask Newcastle fans how they feel about that. Um, you know, when he's connected to the community, you can wind up with owners that spend tons and tons of money, but connect you to things you may not want to be connected to from an ethical standpoint. I don't know who these good owners are. Um, and so it leads us to the challenge of understanding the protest without really knowing 
what the way forward is. So I guess the first thing I'll ask you is watching these, and I don't know, did you get to see the sort of Old Trafford protest taking place as that was happening? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ironically, during an Arsenal game, so I get to watch my game in a little square next to the news, <laughs> um, which given Arsenal season probably wasn't the end of the world, but it was a rare win for us, so didn't appreciate that. Um, so I want to carefully touch on a few things around the protests before we can finish with just where this leads. The first thing I want to ask you is just your initial sort of emotional reaction to seeing the the protest extend to the point of people breaking into Old Trafford, you know, obviously trespassing on property they were not permitted on, engage in actions that technically speaking are lawless. And the way and the way you reacted to that, obviously as Americans, we've seen scenes that this might have been reminiscent of or evocative of, but from a much different perspective. So did you have just sort of an emotional or instinctive reaction to seeing that aspect of the protest? You know, I, I, people are angry and, and sizable numbers of fans are angry. I don't think it's interesting because I, I don't really want to compare it to what happened January 6th in the U S Capitol because one is sports, one is government. Yeah. And we don't really have, an American sports equivalent. I was trying to think like, mm. is there anything like that? that no, you, you know what American I said, Grant? sports fans have done. I, th- I think the other thing is Americans sort of have come to accept their sports teams as glossy businesses that they patronize right. for entertainment. So protesting, you know, the New York giants would be like protesting inside a Walmart for, you know, nicer aisles, <laughs> but there is a community and cultural aspect to the way these clubs are viewed in football in England and in Europe generally, where I think it feels much more personal right. to them. They're protecting a community institution in a way that I I don't think translates to the American experience. Right. I mean, the the only thing I can think of is like embarrassed NFL fans, a, a team wearing paper sacks over their heads at a game. But yeah. like, that's a, a very mild thing compared to the kind of protest we saw at Old Trafford. Obviously I, I don't condone people doing illegal things, but I also think they're angry for a reason. Mm. And Man United fans were angry about the Glazers even when Sir Alex Ferguson was still at the yep. club and they were winning trophies mm-hmm. all the time, winning the Premier League. And so um, it's not just because they've dropped a little bit on the field that they're angry. They're angry about the debt that the Glazers have saddled the club with from the start while taking money themselves off the team Mm -hmm. uh they're angry that the glazers have never really interacted with fans whatsoever Mm -hmm. and they hide from the public um and they're angry about a lot of stuff and so um i sympathize with that totally and and, and so like when i'm watching the protest do i want to see them breaking into the stadium and see somebody going into the dressing room for the players no but I'm also not condemning them for being angry and protesting. And, and, and I, I think it's missing, like some of the coverage, but NBC did a pretty good job, but like, I don't think they did enough to explain the context of why the fans were so angry at the Glazers. Was there even an attempt to do that? The one thing that bothered me is it felt like it really quickly sort of fell into the very comfortable space of, these are hooligans. This is horrible. They shouldn't right. be, you know, th- there was a lot of uh, protecting the sacred institutions of this building with some grass in it and not a lot of attempting to understand why 
thousands of young people feel so upset and so aggrieved over this institu- this community institution being, in their view, attacked right. and gutted. I mean, is that a shame that there wasn't an effort to, to try to have some empathy in that situation? In my opinion, yes. Um, and I felt that way enough to wonder if, you know, and I, I'm friends with the people at NBC, but I did wonder a little bit if, like, there had been any directive from above about mm. like, you know, we cover the NFL as well, which can be a really prickly organization. Mm. The Glazers are NFL owners or because NBC's fighting CBS to get the, to continue you know, having the mm. premier league. Um, I did wonder if they were being sort of conservative about that, but that said, I, I, I think Arlo White in particular is absolutely fantastic. I have a hard time imagining him, toning down anything. And I thought his like FaceTime reports from the stadium were just good reporting. Yeah. And I mean, I do think, look, for those of you who didn't uh, obviously see the American coverage over here, it was sort of breathlessly covered as being a a little more criminal in, in tone and nature than maybe I think is necessary. And look, I realize this is a thorny topic because for some people, their attitude is this was lawlessness and you can't endorse it. I tend to take a little more empathetic view of it as a group of people who have been locked away in their homes for a year had their livelihoods impacted, had their social engagements reduced to basically a digital world where everything is more emotional and, and anger oriented. And then this last fiber of connection to something they really care about is someone attempts to cut that and it feels like a last straw. And I, you know, I, I try to understand that because I think if you fail to understand that, then you're going to see more and more of these kinds of situations arise as you try to put, people through greater and greater uh, challenges with their, their life, their society, their, their culture, which is really what this is. But in terms of what it can change, you know, I sort of wonder like, look, they got the game delayed and right. that is obviously a, a major disruption for sponsors, for the media organizations, for the club itself. Um, you know, once the sponsors start to get spooked or feel that they're on the wrong side, you know, a sponsor now might say, well, do we want to promote Premier League football and Manchester United? Because we may be seen by people as promoting something that they oppose. So maybe sponsors start to get squirmy. And when sponsors go, broadcast contracts shrink. And when broadcast contracts shrink, the the league becomes less profitable and less attractive to these owners. I mean, setting aside who might come in, is it really possible that these kind of actions can have a chain reaction economically that does lead to an, an overhaul in the ownership model where these American owners say it, it's already a loss-making institution in some ways. The asset's as valuable as it's ever going to be. Let me get out of here before this gets worse. It's possible. I don't see the Cronkies selling Arsenal right now. I don't see the Glazers selling Man United. Um I do think, you know, the television companies provide so much money to the Premier League that they're going to communicate, look, we need to be able to know that games are going to happen. You know, this can't become a pattern where we're postponing the biggest rivalry game in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and this could just be a one-off, right? If it, if it becomes a regular thing, then that would certainly be something and it would cause the tv networks globally i think to to think some things through but um it's not like we're seeing these fan groups in england say publicly like we're going to turn this into the 1980s and become hooligans again and make 
know, the stadiums, a place where people are scared to go to. I don't see things going back to that and I don't see them threatening to do that. Mm. Uh, they aren't. So we'll see how long this sort of continues this anger because they do want something. The, the must group at man United of the supporters trust, mm-hmm. you know, put out a statement about what they're looking for from the Glazers by this Friday. So they're, they're communicating publicly in a way that, frankly, the Glazers hadn't been. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. Yeah, and obviously Arsenal supporters going through something similar. There was a big demonstration outside the ground the other day. I'm, I imagine those will continue, although probably not Thursday night. We'll see. I think that there's sort of a disagreement about whether doing it Thursday night makes sense, but that's more for sporting purposes. Um, it is a tricky one, too, because supporters still want to support their players. They still want to support the team. It's not the team that they are protesting it is the ownership specifically and so how do you remain supportive of one um while protesting the other that is obviously a a difficult needle to thread two final things here and i'll let you go just real quick from an arsenal standpoint stan Kroenke's just not an easy guy to like i mean it's just that simple he's not an easy owner to like ask anyone in st louis ask anyone you know that's that's an arsenal fan obviously and, and fans of his franchises in the u.s and and around the world will tell you that you know, you're getting someone that's largely going to be absentee. I think Arsenal fans are obviously at wit's end with Stan Kroenke, but as someone who's sort of familiar with him from a 360-degree perspective in the U.S., he is um, he is an owner that I, I think it is really hard for me to identify what he's about at all. Do you have any sense of what Stan Kroenke wants other than just these sort of legacy iconic institutions to be associated with his name because it's unclear to me that he cares about their success from a sporting standpoint and he's never made himself available to the media in a way that he could explain what he wants to Mm -hmm. the public and so that's left people to fill in the blanks with whatever they think and the impression that most people have is that he doesn't have an emotional attachment to any of these things he owns you know he's had a team in the super bowl recently Um, just as the Glazers won the Super Bowl this year. And their fans probably don't care that much about the personality of the Glazers or Stan Kroenke. It's just, as you mentioned, a different sports culture over here. Um, So what I would want, what I think would be smart for Arsenal to do is Josh Kroenke has much more involvement with the club, Stan's son, than Stan. And I actually know Josh a little bit. It's been a while since I've had contact with him, but I actually covered him and interviewed him once for a magazine story when he was a basketball player at the University of Missouri in the late 90s. Wow. And a pretty good basketball player. Um, and I think he's a reasonable guy, but I'm surprised that Josh Kroenke doesn't make himself available more often publicly to explain what he's wanting to do with Arsenal so that the fans can understand that. And my guess is, and I think Josh is a pretty good speaker. He's got a good reputation with the Denver Nuggets and what he's done there. He's tried a bit. Um, He just did an AST meeting by Zoom, Grant. And the thing is like, the shame of it is if you could say to any extent that this relationship was being rehabilitated, I mean, I'm not, we're talking very small margins here, but there was some attempt to rehabilitate it and Josh was involved. That's why the timing of the Super League feels so bad for Arsenal fans with KSE, because I think there had been some effort to reach out, to communicate. Josh had made himself, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate the positive steps, but there was something. And then this 
just slid it right back to square one with Josh even acknowledging in the AST, the trust has never been there, which begs the question, well, why haven't you worked to build any? Right. You know, and, and so I think he understands probably more than his dad does about the culture in Europe, the culture of Arsenal fans. Uh, I just am curious to see if he tries to do a little more moving forward now, but um, yeah, I mean, like, and even the Liverpool owners, I'm surprised because, you know, they're liked more than the Arsenal and Man United owners by their fans because they've won big trophies recently. And they've been sort of slapped down on a couple of occasions in recent years when they tried to trademark Liverpool and do a few other things. And the fans were like, no, this is idiotic. Don't do this. And John Henry appears to care what the Liverpool fans think. So then I'm just, I'm actually more disappointed and surprised in John W. Henry about the Super League than I am the Arsenal and Man United owners because John W. Henry seems to get it to some extent and gets it much better than the previous American owners did for Liverpool who were pretty hated yeah i the only thing i'd say is that i think and i'm speaking a little bit out of school so be careful but i think fsg you look at what they've done with the boston red sox like they want to use analytics and superior efficiency in the market to compete and compete at the highest level they don't want to do it by spending more than the opposition i don't think that's the model they want to lean into and i think fsg is probably realizing look we got here we got to the mountaintop this is you can't always outsmart or be more efficient than clubs like Man City that can spend unlimited resources, they want a model where they can use their efficiencies in the market, their understanding of analytics to really be routinely successful without having to do it uh, at a deficit or at a loss. Um, I'll leave you with just one upbeat topic, just real quick, because this has been heavy stuff. Um, Women's football, obviously like on a national team level, hugely popular in the United States, a wonderful team that has, has just been a joy to watch for decades now. I feel like women's club football is finding its place in Europe, in England in particular. We have a, a regular on our podcast, Tim Stillman, who's a professional journalist on the women's side of things, a, a brilliant writer about it, and does great work for, for the Arsenal women's team, which is just Arsenal, right? Um, is this the undiscovered country? Is this, is this something that has the real growth potential? Because we see that men's football is, is so challenged economically in so many ways and going to go through a lot of growing pains trying to find out what it becomes next. Women's football is a great watchable sport that has a lot of support. A lot of people like it when they're exposed to it. Um, Arsenal are a club that I think has, has been a good champion for it. And, you know, you say whatever you want about KSE, and I'm not giving them credit for it, but Arsenal have, I think, done well by the women's program. Um, do you... I know you're someone that enjoys the game tremendously. Do you think commercially that it can find its place, maybe not at the, at the exact same table where men's football is, but it feels like a real white space to me that yeah. that has room to grow. Well, we're already seeing now with this pretty you know big new bigger television contract that the WSL in England has gotten mm-hmm. um, that that's a game changer not just there, but in women's club soccer everywhere, because it's going to drive competition with the NWSL here in the United States. When you put that much more money and this is in that, that TV deal in England is for more money than the NWSL deal that they recently got with CBS and Twitch. Mm. And so are we going to see more us women's national team players leave the NWSL for England? 
maybe, yeah. you know, we've seen a few already. Um, and, and then you see what the women's UEFA champions league is going to look like next season, different, you know, more professional organization, bundle television rights. It, you know, the, the soccer is quite good. You know, I just watched the, the, the women's champions league semifinal leg twos over the weekend and Barcelona play Barcelona their women play more like the traditional Barcelona style than the men do at this point. And they're just amazing to watch. They advance past PSG to the final. Um, and then Chelsea played a great game, got a late decisive goal from harder and ended up advancing past Bayern Munich. But those are two great games with really high stakes actually overlapping at times though. Like, like the way it was scheduled was really poor. Mm. Um, so there's, an asset there that has so much potential and finally UEFA is going to start doing something better about that next season. Um, you know, we're seeing growth here at the NWSL, this angel city team in Los Angeles starts next season. They've got a lot of, they're going to take that league, I think to a new level. Um, and post pandemic, there's just more investment. So women's sports, I think are growing, um, really fast right now and, and seeing what's happening with women's soccer is pretty cool. I think the question that some people have had for a while is like, should women's soccer separate itself from UEFA or from FIFA completely and just sort of start its own path. And maybe it doesn't need to grow the way the men's game did over the last century. And maybe if you separate from FIFA, you separate from that culture that continues inside FIFA to, be very male centric and not understand how much you do need to invest in the women's game. Yeah, I'm going to get my history totally wrong here, but basically I think in England decades ago there was a women's professional league that was developing around I think around wartime and they shut it down yeah. essentially, but there was a lot of popularity for it and had it been allowed to continue and grow, who knows where it could be by comparison. The the one thing I will say is just it needed to eliminate the disparity between clubs, right? I mean, you had clubs like Manchester United that didn't even have a women's team. And right. you might have clubs like Arsenal that are really professionalized and, and operating at a high level and other clubs that could barely put a team on the pitch. And so there's huge disparity in the men's game, but in the women's game, I think it, it, it made it difficult to have a league that was really effectively competitive. That's not the case anymore. And so I think it is positioned now to be, as you said, an asset for any broadcaster that wants to really take it on and promote it yeah. and and do so in a way where I think sponsors are going to be eager to dive in. They want to be associated with that. It's going to be cost effective. It's a growth market. So I would love to see that because I think, um, you know, it's it's nice to see the game have have room to grow into something that feels a little more connected to the, the regular competitiveness of the sport than some of the other conversations we have to have surrounding the men's game right now, which hopefully will resolve themselves. But Grant, I've taken up more of your time than I promised to. So I will let you go there. You should definitely obviously follow Grant Wall on Twitter and read his great work and listen to his great podcast uh, that I mentioned at the top of the show and repeat again. But Grant, thanks so much. Thanks, Elliot. Okay, once again, that was Grant Wall. Uh, definitely check him out on Twitter at Grant Wall. Uh, listen to his podcast, Football with Grant Wall. Read his stuff that he writes for Sports Illustrated, including his uh, article about Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo. And uh, check out the Blue Wire special limited series, American Prodigy, about Freddie Adu. Lots of good stuff there and always more good stuff coming from Grant Wall. And we hope to get the chance to talk to him again in the near future. So that's going to do it for me. We will have uh, patron 
content all week. Of course, we will have a live stream before the second leg of the semifinal. We will have an instant reaction after that, a regular pod on Friday. It just keeps going and going and going, and I hope you will continue to stick around with us for all of it. So thank you so much. We love you, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Be real new. 